Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, and you can also email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. K-B-M-A-K-E-L at AOL.com. I've got a couple news items here. First of all, um, as you know, inflation has hit all of us. And, you know, I just, there's just, everything has gone up. Um, So therefore, I have to cut some expenses. One of the expenses I'm cutting is the premium service that I pay for on Podbean where all the episodes get to stay up and I get a bunch of, you know, audience, audience metrics and things like that. None of that means anything. It's frankly not even that interesting to look at. So I'm going back to the basic service, uh, which will cost me, well, basically nothing. Go from hundred and about 120 bucks to nothing. What that means for everybody else is there'll only be about eight episodes up at any one time it'll be the latest eight episodes will be up and, and frankly you know there's who who really wants to listen to episodes going back to 2019 you know not really anybody does so we're paying for something that few almost no one is using and uh you know so in order to make it more efficient um i'm going to have to you know cut that premium service and the basic service will be just fine if there's an episode that you particularly love, um, go ahead and make sure you download it and keep it on your device. I don't think you'll need to do that, but uh, uh, you know, it's okay. Uh, it'll be the latest. The, usually it's the last three or four episodes, the latest ones, get the most traffic. You know, people will listen to one, then they'll go listen to the one previous, and then the one previous. Almost no one goes back farther because, you know, the information is out of date and frankly i'm not that interesting so uh go ahead and uh deal with that it's gonna be fine and uh it's gonna save some save some coin and everybody you know i mean everybody out there all of us are are looking for ways to save i mean i'm driving less i'm doing less uh in some ways just because you know if everything goes up 10 percent 12 percent I have to do, you know, I have to cut back somewhere because my paycheck isn't going up 10 or 12%. If it was, hey, I would, I would be okay. But, you know, face it, it's not. So uh, I've got to go ahead and economize also. So, and all of us do. All of us are economizing. So um, this is just one of those things. But, you know, I'm still committed to it. I still really enjoy doing it. I enjoy, you know, giving what I think is the benefit of my best advice or my experience and letting people do with it what they will you know um anybody who follows me just out of out of step because i say it you're making a mistake but people who consider what i say and say hey that might be for me or no that's really not for me i don't really agree with that that's that's even better so the archive the only difference you'll see is the archive will not be as large it won't go back to all 139 episodes You'll just see the latest one because this is actually number 139. So there we go. Uh, another thing I want to talk about is people, not a lot, but a few people ask me about gear reviews, you know, latest accessory. And the answer is I really don't do them. 
uh, unless it's something that I've owned and I've used extensively. Um, I don't really do gear reviews, and here's why. Um, I find most of them are just advertising. Um, that's, that's all it is. And they're hyping, you know, there are so many little gizmos out there. And I'm talking about AR-15s especially. You know, it's so many gizmos out there that, number one, I can't keep up with it. And number two, why would I? Um, a lot of it, some of it might be neat to have, nice to have, fun to have. But um, I'm just not into all the latest and greatest. And, and an example of this are the slings, the three, two, sometimes a two-point, but the three-point slings they put out for ARs. They're all fundamentally the same design, which is they're all confusing and they're hard to use and <laughs> it's a great way to get tangled up if you get them set up exactly right yeah they seem to work and you know which buckle hits so that you can you can do certain things um, it's one of those things that they're just kind of over engineered and they're a lot more complex than they need to be so I I tend to shy away from things like that and and all the little gear hooks and gizmos and and all that stuff that that go with it. A lot of a lot of people really are into that. I, I'm a lot more basic and simple, so I don't believe in a lot of gear, um, because frankly, you can you can invest incredible amounts of money. The same thing goes for suppressors. I have nothing against suppressors. I think people who want them should be able to have them uniformly in all 50 states. It's probably never going to happen, but at least in most states. You can get them, you know, you go through the rigmarole and you can get them. Um, do I find that especially on rifles? Well, I'm, I don't know that on pistols. The problem I have with them on pistols are usually they interfere with the sights. And I realize there are some designs that probably don't and there's offset sights and other things. But usually on a pistol, it, they're just kind of cool. Um, on a rifle... A center fire rifle, I'm not really sure. Anything that goes supersonic is, is going to have some other other deals too. Silence 22 rifles are pretty cool. But I, I you know, frankly, I just don't want to spend the $1,000. Then you've got to figure out how to hook it on to the end of your rifle. Some are threaded and obviously can take some sort of adapter that, that does it, which is a good deal. Most rifles are not, so therefore you have to figure all that out. Uh, really, you know, it, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze to me. So um, I don't really uh, review or have big opinions on suppressors. So I will let the guys who, who love gear review the, the different pieces of gear and, and all that. Um, I've made some comments about over the fact that I really think that there's too many different cartridges out there now. I mean, in the last... Uh, you take whatever stretch of time you want, even the last five years, the last ten years, there's an explosion in different cartridges. We, we go, we get 6.5 Creed more than somebody wants it shorter to work in an AR-15, so they come out with a 6.5 something else, and then there's a 6.5 something else again. Uh, we, we keep going, and, and this is in a lot of things. Everything 30 super carry. Well, you can carry two more rounds in a small pistol than you can with 9 mil. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I think that's one of the reasons ammunition manufacturers are having a hard time keeping up. 
and what's happening is older cartridges are getting pushed to the rear now the problem that I have with that and that's why this is old school guns is hey there are a lot of great old cartridges that frankly aren't being made um, if it wasn't for PPU a lot of old military cartridges would just be extinct um, I don't know where you get eight millimeter Mauser anymore I don't know where you get eight millimeter LaBelle they do special runs of that uh, 7.65 Argentine I don't know where you get seven millimeter Mauser even uh, some of the larger manufacturers say they make that stuff but you don't see it you don't ever see it uh, 3040 Crag was another one I mean there's so many older classic cartridges that just aren't getting made because there's all of these new kind of very specialized boutique cartridges that are out there um, it's really bewildering and it's it's kind of the deal where the industry needs to take a look at itself and kind of figure out what's being used and, and how do you support all of these different things uh, how many rifles are actually for some of these cartridges that are out there and the answer is well you know I don't know maybe there's not that many maybe only one manufacturer needs to needs to uh, uh, make a certain caliber it almost becomes proprietary because there just isn't that large of a market for it uh, handguns are not nearly as bad but you know it could it you could see some newer ones and, and handgun cartridges tend to die off like you know 45 gap you know that thing that thing has basically died off 357 sig is kind of dying off a lot of people say 40 Smith and Wesson is dying off but I think there's so many pistols out there chambered for it that it's going to be fine so you know there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there a lot of different cartridges and can they even keep up with it you know think about going back you know into the some of the catalogs and things go back 50 years and we probably had a quarter of the different cartridges we did now I mean that's back in the days where the most the most reloading dies and the most ammunition was sold for 30-06 for rifles and 38 special for uh, for pistols now I don't know that, that those two are even in the top five or the, even the top ten who knows another issue with this is some of these cartridges are just becoming so expensive that really if you have an AR and it's not in 556 I think you really have to do a gut check as to why do why am I shooting this why do why do I need six millimeter arc and maybe there's a legit reason maybe there's a legit reason but it's it's uh, the expense of ammunition is getting higher and higher and some of these you know unique specialized cartridges you you know it can affect the gun market because why would you buy a gun when you have or know that the ammunition is going to be frighteningly expensive as a matter of fact uh, on the this reloading thing I'm on one of the guys had a a played and he hit shot it with a 338 Lapua Magnum okay yeah that's that was kind of interesting it actually stopped the uh, it actually stopped it at 25 yards you know, AR 500 you know plate that they put into plate carriers you know there's there's that big thing with armor now you know the the steel armor is kind of out of out of fashion because it's so heavy but it is very effective 
So, you know, I asked the question, I go, how much is that around now? You know, because I honestly don't know. And I got this snarky reply, well, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. And I I told him, you know, just straight up, I, I can afford it. I was just curious because it's not something that I would, that I use. And I'm just, you know, how, you know, this, it's a very popular cartridge, but still the, you know, how expensive is it? And, and it's actually quite expensive. And, you know, that's, that would affect my decision to buy that gun. I would just look at it and say, do I really, really need this? Now, you know, at the end, the end, you might decide, yes, I really do. And I'll just put up with it. But it might dissuade some people from actually getting it. It's certainly nothing you'd buy as just a range toy or something to experiment with or have fun with. Um, the cost is going to be way too high. So, you know, the the expense of ammunition or certain types of ammunition is definitely going to affect the gun market. Um, you know, it's just that's just the way it is. Ah, another thing. This is my favorite freaking thing. You know, I listen to quite a few shooting podcasts, different ones. And you know, the worst, the worst thing, and actually the podcasts I respect the least are the ones that, you know, for some reason, there's this group of 40, late 40 somethings that want to act like they're quote millennials. So every insult they can throw at quote boomers, uh, meaning anyone older than them. No, I, I, I'm sick and tired of that shit. Um, you don't want to have me listen to your podcast. I won't. For the record, I'm not really a baby boomer. Uh, the baby boomer was just before me. Um, so I, I don't really, it's not like I'm taking it personally, but they don't mean that for that specific thing. They mean anyone who's older than them who might have some traditional thoughts about guns and calibers and and uh you know it's just to me it's just low rent i mean it's not like we're democrats or anything <laughs> you know i mean they deserve all the insults look what they've done to our country but um you know the boomers you know there's a lot of shooting a lot of things we enjoy now that that previous groups of people have set up for us and certainly you could say the nine millimeter revolution pistol revolution uh is one the uh you know the black rifles the ars and and really the ars that that a lot of people like nowadays which are all modular and can be used for different things uh you know that was all set up by people who were probably boomers quote unquote so making fun of them and going after them really seems to be pretty low brow but it happens happens all the time so i wonder uh basically how did this happen why what are the real changes that uh that have happened and, and as i think going back you know shooting games and i mean competitions the different types of competitions were so much different uh back say 40 years ago and and before um, the emphasis on guilt edge accuracy was much greater back then the uh, especially in handguns the emphasis in you know the standards 
of what an accurate handgun was and is was a lot different. I mean, a lot different. And not of all of it was a good thing. I mean, some of it was just mythos. Um, you know, you take a... Uh, <laughs> it used to be that the 1911A1, the, the standard military configuration, was looked upon as an inaccurate, you know, basically good for close range defense, that's it. And unless you had the trigger done, the sights put on it, and all the all the modifications to make it a target gun, it really wasn't good for much. And we found out that that's fundamentally only partially true. That you can do some good work with a 1911, especially now that, you know, face it, Block and some of these other ones have just never, you know, produced accuracy that is superior. So it's, um, you know, it's 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 all about expectation management and some of those some of those guns back then were just fantastically made and they were fantastically accurate compared to even some of the offerings we have now so um, you know because somebody has a different view or different standards doesn't mean they need to be attacked especially by some of these pathetic pathetic dudes who were just you know self-proclaimed experts it's ridiculous one thing that's uh, come up another issue is bear attacks a couple years ago you know it was always kind of funny I got had a couple questions on you know bear defense guns and all the rest of this you know but um, in actual reading, and it, actually, there was a soldier just killed in a bear attack. And there have been a couple of hunters who've been who've been uh, killed in the last couple of years in bear attacks, or, or at least attacked. And um, you know, the funny part is, people who are armed, and you would think, hey, I'm I'm carrying a rifle, I'm pretty much invulnerable to a bear attack, or at least I can inflict some damage. But sometimes these things happen so quickly; they're so unexpected. And the, the bear is a very fast animal, and if it's close by and you don't detect it, and it jumps out of a thicket on you, um, there's no time to employ a weapon. So, you know, bear attacks are still a very real thing. And I don't know what the really the best defense is. Um, you know, they they uh, we've talked about it in the past, the 500 Smith & Wesson snub-nose. <laughs> um, you know, I think the best thing for a bear attack is actually the buddy system. You know, you have at least one other or maybe two other people, and you're all watching each other's backs. And if somebody gets attacked, you go to their aid. I mean, maybe that's the best of bear defense, uh, rather than quibbling about calibers and, and types of weapons, is to make sure you're armed with something that will kill a bear and uh, having each other's backs. But it's uh, it's amazing that, Every few years this comes up, there's still a fear, justifiable, there's still a fear of the bear. The bear is a very formidable animal and not just something that uh, we can just wish away or carry a good luck charm in the, uh, in the form of a firearm and, and uh, they'll, they'll go away. There's nothing about carrying a firearm that dissuades a bear. It's only when you employ it uh, effectively that a bear is is stopped but if a bear sees you with a gun they don't 
they they don't run in the other direction scared so uh, it's it has no deterrent value to a bear so that's the uh, that's a lesson there I guess another thing I uh, I ran across was hunting is the numbers of hunters is declining in the United States I think that is I don't know if that's a real statistic and I'll tell you why I think COVID-19 stopped a lot of hunting a lot of hunters from going hunting I should say I think you know when people were in the pandemic they just they were busy making other things happen and work in their lives and um, so hunting hunting declined because of that you know travel became more difficult you know, hotel rooms and all kinds of things became more difficult so I think that contributed to some of it uh, another thing is I think it's now economics everything costing more um, some of the fun things have to be cut out maybe foot maybe hunting is is part of that so I'm not sure that that's a uh, um, yeah I'm not sure that the statistic is all that real I think maybe if it were cheaper more people would want to do it um, but when you're on the you know when you don't know if you're gonna have a job tomorrow or you don't know how much gasoline you know gasoline at four dollars a gallon or five dollars a gallon is a lot different than gasoline at 275 or 250 a gallon so uh, that, that all that travel all those things are going to contribute to declining hunting and uh, that's actually a a bad thing for animals because a lot of the fees and you know the tax and other things that the kind of flow to help animals and habitat making sure that we have plenty of game animals some of that's going to dry up so what effect will that have kind of remains to be seen I think we won't see the effect of that for a couple of years so hunting declining I, I'm not sure that it is willfully declining because of lack of interest I think it's predominantly just the the environment of the last two and a half years plus the uh, uncertain economics of the present did you hear this uh, one story about it's related to hunting it's about dog retrieval on private land as a private landowner I don't know what how I really think about this I, I like dogs and I don't shoot dogs I would never do that unless I was being attacked if I'm being attacked and then, then hey it's a whole thing but hunting dogs don't attack people um, you know if somebody's dog ran onto my place would I be all that upset about it no I would like somebody to to come and say hey I'm sorry my dog ran on your place can I go retrieve it I would say of course go go ahead get it you know that's that's the dog doesn't know <laughs> dog doesn't know surveying and boundaries so and it just being a dog so that's fine uh, apparently somewhere there's a law that says I guess it's uh, Vermont or Connecticut or someplace that you can go on somebody's land without their permission and retrieve your dog and you have to immediately leave and and humma 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 and somebody's suing over that saying hey when you do that you're effectively denying use and seizing someone's land at least temporarily it'll go up in front of the Supreme Court I, 
I'm, I'm a big property rights guy. I mean, my property is my property. That's why I have it. I pay for it. I work and I pay for it. So I don't necessarily believe that, uh, you know, everybody's got the right to traipse onto my place. I mean, that's just, it's mine. However, I am reasonable. There are times, there are times when I don't have a problem. We have neighbors. Our neighbors have some cows occasionally. Sometimes the cows can figure out how to get through a fence or get around a fence or break down a fence. If that happens, what do I want the guy just to, I can't go on that land and get my, my cattle back because I haven't secured permission? No, I, I want them to go get the cattle, put them on the right side of the fence, fix the fence, and we're all good neighbors and everything's happy. And uh, I have no problem with that. Um, I really would have no problem with somebody... Um, they can't use it as a pretext to hunt on my place or, or just traipse around there. But, you know, an animal is an animal. And um, as humans, one of the things we do is we take care of animals. And so we got, and that's making sure the animals are in the right place. And if they've wandered in some place where they're not supposed to be, then the, uh, you know, we, we take care of them and move them back. So I don't know how that's going to play out. I have a very funny feeling that it's going to play out that, um, you know, you're going to have to secure permission in order to retrieve a dog. And, uh, well, we'll see how that goes. Okay, now is a time where we move into my favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And we got a few today. First is, when it comes to pistols and even some rifles... Do the designations match or target really mean anything? Um, I'm not. You'll extend that to you know there were there were super match national match versions and super match versions of things. What that has normally meant in the past, and this is actually going back to talking about the boomer insults. Um, back in the day, the word target. Like the Smith & Wesson Model 14, the target masterpiece. Okay, even though it was, it was carried by some police officers as a holster gun, but it was a very accurate pistol. It had, you know, it was, it had the standard Smith & Wesson adjustable sights, but it, it was really a gun that was preferred for use in um, target shooting. So... It had the target designation. The Colt Match Target 22 pistol was used in competition, and that used both match and target. Um, the Colt Gold Cup National Match was presumably a good enough pistol that if you plucked it out of a box, lubricated it, and took it to the national matches, you would have a pistol which would be competitive. So that's usually what that means. There's no quantifiables. Uh, I have a SIG P210 target. Um, as near as I can tell, I have a probably a lighter trigger and I have adjustable sights, of course. So that has made it the target version. Could you carry that as a holster pistol? Well, probably. The trigger is kind of light and nice but it's a, it's a very nice pistol so you could you could use it but it's intended it's been 
optimized or maximized uh, within within its design uh, to be a competition pistol as opposed to a duty pistol. So that's what it meant. Um, there's no real standards on any of this. There's yes, certain parts. There are national match parts for M1 rifles. There's national match sites for M1 and M14 rifles, which basically had uh, different, which basically had different uh, um, graduations, and you could actually had the little hood that you could spin around and get half an inch of elevation on it, and you know all that kind of stuff was very very good. It was very very good. But, um, you know, there's no set criterion. You can call anything target or you can call anything match. And, um, you know, whether, whether it is or not, you can, you can do that. But uh, it was generally, especially if you're looking at an older gun, like a Colt match target, it was definitely intended for the competitions of the day, which were, you know, really accuracy-oriented. Um, you don't see that on a lot of guns now, but you see a lot of a lot of titles. Everything is a little bit different, but um, that's what those used to mean on the older older guns. And there were a lot of great guns that never really had that. I don't think the Smith and Wesson 625 was ever called a match or a target. So I don't think that is. Maybe the 25. I don't think it was either, which was the older blue steel version. Uh, 25-2. The 25-5 was a 45 Colt, which is a cool gun, but it was never uh, never intended as a target gun. So, anyway, those are uh, those are the ones that are there. So, um, yeah, if you run across something called National Match or Target, you might want to just examine exactly what has made it so. And uh, usually, it's adjustable trigger or adjustable sights. Or perhaps it has been upgraded with some tighter fitting parts to make it more accurate. Okay, next question. Do you use a double spinner target? Um, I assume it's those ones you see the, the YouTube creators have. It's a smaller one at the top and a larger one in the bottom and they rhythmically hit this thing with a pistol or a rifle to try to get it to spin um, all the way around. I, I've actually never shot on one of those. Um, they're kind of expensive. Um, they look safe enough to me. Although I would have to say that, you know, again, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know where those ricochets are going to go if it ricochets off of it. If you're using full metal jacket, if it if the ammunition you're shooting is gonna essentially disintegrate on the uh, um, on the plate, then you're you're probably okay. But yeah, that you could uh, you could quite, especially the top one, if it's leaning back, you know, in that that kind of rocking motion, you could hit that and have a bullet, you know, skip over a berm or something. So yeah, I've been a little bit leery of those. Um, you know, frankly, other there are a lot of other things that are just that are fine. But I understand that they're entertaining. Um, I think the other the other thing is they seem to be. I don't know what they're actually training with those, because you're you're kind of rhythmically. I know it's kind of quick target engagement, shooting the target when it's in the right aspect 
to get it to you know spin around and perform so I guess there's some value with that it seems like you would use a lot of ammunition though so um, I'm not really I'm not really that crazy about it and again the um, hitting the top one to get it to spin around you I think you could get some weird ricochets off of that and uh, depending on where you're shooting and what the environment is that may or may not be a go okay what are the best and worst revolvers from your point of view uh, let me see if I could only have one brand of revolver it would be Smith & Wesson uh, I love Smith & Wesson revolvers I think they they do everything revolvers should do they're accurate they're robust they're reliable um, they're very well balanced very comfortable in hand they exhibit a high quality of manufacture. And I'm talking about even the modern ones everybody likes to dog out, but they're all good. Uh, so I would, I would say Smith & Wesson is my favorite, uh, followed by Colt, followed by Ruger. Um, my, the, what's the difference between the Smith & Wesson and the Ruger? I, I think it's, it's balance. It's also just the fitting of the trigger mechanism. Smiths always seem smoother to me. Um, and most of the Rugers I've shot have been single action, so that that's a different dynamic. They're also because yeah, they, I've never shot a single action quite as well as I've shot a Smith & Wesson double action. So that's why I choose those. Um, other revolvers that are less, um, I don't really have a lot of experience with. Some people will swear by some of the different brands. There are some exotics that I don't know. I've never shot a Manharin revolver. I think I shot a Korth revolver years and years ago, but it wasn't enough to get an impression. It was more like, this is my Korth revolver shoot. It, it was in Germany and in and, and kind of a friendly friendly way somebody was just sharing that with me but I didn't I didn't shoot it more than once or twice I, I mean it seemed fine but I didn't I didn't shoot it enough to gain a favorable or unfavorable impression so those are the best best and worst from my point of view so that's what you know take that for what it's worth but there are other good revolvers out there I'm sure okay here's another question was the 357 Magnum revolver really better than earlier guns and cartridges I think that means is when the 357 came out in the mid 1930s was it really better than the stuff that was already out there and I'm going to gore some sacred oxes and I'm gonna say I don't really think so um, it certainly had better like the 38 super it had better performance against the you know kind of primitive armored limousines or cars that, that that crooks might have although I don't even know that I know Al Capone had one but I don't know that those were widespread enough to to require a revolver that would go through it and even then I would say that as good as the 357 Magnum is being it is how it shot a lead bullet I think that even a 351 Winchester would have been would have performed better against you know primitive armored cars or armored uh, up armored limousines or whatever and so when you always see that 
that thing of well you know they they introduced the, the, you see it more with the 38 super they introduced it to counter the uh um armor you know the armored cars that the uh, uh gangsters were using and the answer is i i just don't think that was the case i mean the motor bandits whether it's bonnie and clyde whether it's pretty boy floyd or john dillinger they didn't seem to go out and buy armored cars they just seemed to go out and buy cars it's, it speed to them was much more valuable than than uh, armor so armored cars would have been slower uh, the only person that would have made any sense to was an Al Capone who's, you know, driving around a city where, you you know, you're not driving that fast. So um, it, there was actually a story, story saying that uh, Franklin Roosevelt used uh, Al Capone's car. I'm not sure that's true. Um, you know, might have been true, but yeah that you know if you're driving around a city yeah it would have some value but i don't think there were that many of them as a matter of fact al capone's is the only one that i can think of the rest of them used fast cars because you rob a bank and you get out of town and you're driving fast and in those days i'm getting off topic but in those days um a lot of law enforcement local law enforcement had their own cars so if you've got you know kind of the puny four-cylinder model a or even a model t you have something like a v8 ford you know you're going to outrun those guys literally you're going to have twice the speed and performance they do so you're down the road and you're just you know they're just losing space and a lot of times they would have to stop pursuing at the county line or even the city limits so you know when, the faster you can get to the city limits or the county line or the state line they've got to stop anyway so uh, a faster car was a lot more valuable than one that could uh, theoretically um, you know was proof against pistol rounds so I think that was it I, I just think that 357 you know and it's always had this aura of hype about it when I was a kid they used to say that the big thing about 357 which was totally not true was that from a block away it could shoot through a car's engine block and we had no reason not to believe that because we'd never shot an engine block i mean i kind of knew what an engine block was but i had never tried to shoot one with anything so i i didn't know if that was true and most people didn't and it turns out it's completely untrue completely untrue but it always had this thing that, yeah, if you hit somebody in the finger, you'd sh shatter the bones up to their elbow. What the 357 did have was it was flat shooting. Not that that's a real problem with pistols, but uh, it was flat shooting. It, it was much more powerful than the 38 Special. And um, it was a lot louder. I mean, it, it came in a big heavy gun and big you know large powerful revolvers inspired you know confidence um uh and so you know it was it was definitely something it was a lot different than the other stuff that was on the market but i don't think it was superior i think i still come from the big bullet big hole thing that you know the you know 3840 4440 45 cold 45 acp 44 special those were great revolver rounds you know and, and like 45 acp in the 1917 revolver those were great 
man stoppers they worked you know the Webley 455 was even a good one those things worked and uh, so I don't know that the 357 was so superior if superior at all to those when it just came to the actual thing of stopping someone shooting an armed assailant and and inflicting the maximum amount of damage you can with a single pistol shot uh, I think it was better than the 38 special but you know hey so the 357 has always kind of been overrated the other thing I don't care about the 357 and I'm not a 357 hater but I you know it's it's a very loud cartridge and uh, you know it doesn't have kind of that throaty pop that some of the <laughs> older bigger cartridges have it, it has a much more of a crack to it um, some people like that I don't really care for that but um, you know it's it is what it is that being said there are just some outstanding revolvers in 357 certainly the Colt Python leading the way and other ones becoming uh, you know these fantastic um, you know the model 19 the you know even the model 27 model 28 Smith & Wesson pistols you know there have been just some fantastic 357s out there so it's a it really is a great handgun but I've never really been that huge of a fan of the cartridge okay here's another question is the sporting rifle making a comeback and if so what changes are happening with it um, I kind of paraphrase that because I was asked that question and I sort of had to write it down from memory but the sporting rifle has really changed from the you know old Remington 700 ADL you know that Remington 700 action kind of you know thin contour barrel in a wooden stock not really bedded or anything and a very effective tool because most game is shot at comparatively close range so sporting rifles have been slowly morphing and it's been the PRS rifles and it's been the tactical rifles that kind of the influence of hey kind of a chassis stock of some type which cures all the bedding problems um, other components are being made lightweight but trying to enhance the accuracy long-range hunting which I have I have real doubts about but that's influenced it too so the other thing that's been been odd is Savage has introduced a uh, uh, straight pull <laughs> rifle that's probably the first straight pull that's been uh, introduced in a hundred years or so or well since the k31 I suppose so 90 years I just don't think that uh, um, anyone else has done well you know you could look at the blazers and, and and things like that I guess they're straight pull but those are those are pretty high-end uh, rifles so I guess there have been some European kind of straight pulls but uh, you know it's it's amazing it's uh, they take essentially the hundred and 
well, 30-year-old design bolt action and are making it more modern with updated materials, better optics, and all these other things. So I would say that's the, they are making a comeback. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people who are using these for different, different things, which is surprising given that there's allegedly a decline in hunting. So um, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they, they go, but definitely the woodstocked traditional hunting rifle as we've known it from say 1920 to 2000 uh, that, that's really kind of going by the wayside yeah i don't think you'll see a lot of rifles like remton 700 bdls you know kind of the fancy grade one you won't see a lot of that um you'll see more kind of tactical I, I i call it tactical but it's really more modernized modernized with chassis stocks or fiberglass stocks uh in some cases the ability to take like in 556 the ability to take military magazines um you know that's that's another or or in other calibers you know taking larger capacity magazines perhaps so it's going to be very interesting to see how that kind of goes I think just like the AR-15 system has kind of had a trajectory and it's kind of leveled out. I think this is leveling out also. Um, but you know, there's always going to be a market for very accurate rifles. They just, people like them. I do. You know, at, at Townsend Whalen way back in the day said only accurate rifles are interesting. And he's actually true. It's actually true. Um, nobody is that interested in Remington 700 ADLs, which, you know, shoot minute of deer and do, you know, do exactly everything they're designed to do. But people do and are fascinated by rifles that can shoot a quarter inch group at 100 yards. That's just the way it is. Here's another question. Oh, on another podcast, I heard the Beretta M9 was a piece of trash. Is that true? Um... Well, no, it's not true. Uh, there's a lot of things that are said on podcasts that are that are just absolutely ridiculous. I may have actually heard the same one. Um, it was some guy who fancies himself a big expert because he has a, you know, manufacturer's FFL or something, and says that although he was never in the service, although he never served in the U.S. military, somehow he was training quote unquote MPs. And he had all these horror stories about the M9 with broken slides and just a piece of crap, blah, 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 on and on and on. So I, I just kind of, uh, I, I put that up against my own observations and my own experience, and that's not true. Um, number one, I never saw a broken Beretta that wasn't, wasn't battle damage, you know, I mean, and that, that can happen to any weapon, obviously. Uh, I did see some that, that were well-worn examples because frankly the you know after 30 years of of really hard use you know the the Beretta will show some uh, some age you know probably it probably shows its age a little more than say uh, a 1911 would given the same uh, given the same uh, you know kind of vintage and use so a Beretta that's been in service for 30 years is probably going to show more wear than a 1911. It's just, that's just the way it is, because 1911's all steel. 
But that being said, I never saw a broken Beretta or a broken 1911 for that matter. So I do believe that there was, you know, a lot of people have a particular grudge against a manufacturer for some reason. And uh, my experience with the M9 was it was an absolutely excellent, excellent gun. And I was a Beretta hater. When, Beretta, when they announced that the Beretta M9 was going to take the place of the, and replace the 1911, you know, I was, I, I just didn't even want to touch an M9. I didn't want anything to do with it. I just wanted to keep a 1911. And fortunately, I was in units that actually kept 1911s until like 1994, 1995, and then finally had to, finally were forced to turn them all in. But I, once I fired the M9, once I got used to it, um, I was impressed. Very accurate, very reliable, to the point where I even got my own Beretta 92 um, because I always believed it was important to qualify with a weapon that was similar to what you were issued and also to practice with that. And so since I couldn't take my M9 home and practice with it, I, I got a substitute, which was the, you know, the, the only real difference was the markings. So, um, so I, I got familiar with the the M9 and the Beretta 92, and they're very good guns. Even to the point where I've purchased one of those police surplus 92Ss, the one that has the magazine button down on the heel, um, just because they were, they were very economically priced when they were selling them. You know, they brought in a big import of these things, and, um, you know, they were police turn-ins, I guess, from the Italian police, and they'd been refurbished, and uh, they're very cool guns. They're very cool. Um, I like the regular 92 better. The sights on the regular 92 are a little better. And, of course, I like where the magazine release is. The, the problem I have with the 92S is I keep reaching for where the M9 and 92FS have, their, uh, have the magazine button, which is, you know, the, in the traditional place that you'd find on 1911s and everything else practically with a button magazine so I, I keep reaching for the head <laughs> for that there I have to mentally uh, go to a place where I'm taking uh, um, I'm taking that pistol out um, and I, I have to mentally put myself that hey the buttons down here it's not up there so but other than that I enjoy it I think it's a nice pistol um, they're all they're all very good they're all very reliable um, they you know there's nothing wrong with them and but there are guys who don't like one manufacturer or another you know uh so you you have to take that in mind when you're listening to these things i would also say that someone who's never never actually served does a critique on a military weapon now you can have some very knowledgeable guys who can say hey the beretta 92 is this that and the other thing and i listen to that because that's that's all okay but when they tell me that the beretta m9 in service is a piece of junk and the guys never put a uniform on uh you know where do you, where do you think that advice goes or that observation goes that goes into the trash can and in fact uh i have not done so i haven't had the opportunity i i have not really handled one of the new sigs i would love to shoot the sig side by side with the beretta and i would even construct my own test um, 
to do that. I, and I've thought about it. I, I just not really that interested in investing in a uh, uh, an M17 clone. But it would be interesting to shoot them side by side and see if my and, and see what my you know observations and thoughts would be after that whether it is an improvement or maybe it's just different you know so that's the kind of thing I, I want to see is it an improvement or is it just different and uh, you know go from there but yeah I, I believe I heard the same podcast that the question was referencing and yeah it's it's there's a lot of nonsense you know so there you go uh, is there anything else on that oh you know you, you get the same guys who uh, complain about 1911s? You know, they, I've I've gone up against, not gone up against, but I've run across guys who've served anywhere from the Vietnam War on. You know, and and the Vietnam guys are getting, you know, they're in their 70s, they're getting a little long in the tooth, but they will swear that you know they would pick up 45s and and they would just rattle, you know, and and they were all worn out and everything else. And as we see by the guns coming out of the CMP, that's not true. The CMP guns are actually, you know, uh, in in really pretty good shape. Even the rack and fee, uh, field grade ones are are definitely serviceable guns, and definitely there's nothing wrong with them. Now you could say, well, the CMP is probably taking the worst examples out, but I don't think there's that many of those. Um, I'm very impressed with the, uh, you know, the ones that were that are coming out very good. And I was always very impressed with them when I was on active duty, and I saw, you know, and I carried them, carried them around. They worked. They're not target guns, but they they definitely worked. All right, that dovetails into our next question: Is what do you think of CMP quality nowadays, as opposed to say ten years ago, twenty years ago, or nearly thirty years ago when um, when it was started? Are they just selling stuff that is junk now, or is it basically the same? Okay, um, I'm actually quite well qualified to talk about this. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, people had could buy from the DCM, and you could buy like the, the you really couldn't buy M1s, but the DCM, by the way, Director of Civilian Marksmanship. And the director of civilian marksmanship could release surplus weapons to people who were qualified. It was this was before the all the political stuff about the NRA. So you had to be kind of basically an NRA member, and you had to prove that you'd used um, been in competition, and you submitted all these records, and you could buy things. Um, and people would buy 1911s, uh, M1 carbines. They sold. They also sold a lot of O3s and O3A3s. And this is back in the 50s and 60s. As a matter of fact, Senator John F. Kennedy uh, purchased a National Match. You know, I think he purchased a National Match M1 in the 50s. So M1s must have been available. Because I know I, I saw in the deal that his he actually owned a National Match M1. So... Uh, you know you could you could get these things and the deal with them was is that a lot of these were unissued weapons or weapons that had been through they looked unissued because they might have just gone through arsenal refinish 
and Cosmoline didn't put away, and then they were sold. And it was kind of like the, uh, the the surplus weapon importations of the 80s and 90s and 2000s, where, hey, you get a gun that it came out of a factory for refurbish, and it's covered with Cosmoline, and uh, it really looks brand new. So people were used to getting what they considered to be, and, and in those days, people didn't really get the difference between a brand new uh, rifle and pistol and something that had been, you know, refurbished, just had been reparkerized, all the parts replaced, the nice stock put on it and everything. They didn't really get the difference. So they thought they were getting weapons that had never been fired when in fact, you know, most of them had, had gone through this process. So they were used to what they considered to be new weapons. Um, that all dried up. It really was after the Kennedy assassination. That all dried up. And what happened was they would release, I think it was some paltry thing, like 200 rifles a year. And so you could get an M1, but you had to go through all the rigmarole I described before. And then you were on a waiting list for a couple of years. And usually by the time they got to you, you know, it could be two or three years later or four years later. So it wasn't that awesome of a deal, actually. You had to wait. Then they upped it to 600 rifles a year, something like that. And then they, uh, at the very end they of the DCM, which was in the early 90s, yeah, early 90s, they um, basically, you, you still had to go through all the rigmarole, but then they would sell you a rifle. So they didn't really have a limit on how many they would sell. But what limited it was the people willing to go through the hassle of... You know, you had to be in a competition that had to be verified. The scores had to be the you had to put together a packet with all this garbage in it and everything else. So I did that at the end of the DCM and got a very nice M1. Um, very happy with it. The um, the other side of the coin on that was that the DCM basically went away and they set up a private corporation called the the um, the CMP civilian marksmanship program I guess it's what it's called and it's a private corporation and what the army does is the army basically transfers these surplus weapons to the CMP which does all the maintenance and all the other stuff that the army used to do and then it distributes them and sells them and so there you go so in actuality, I bought an M1 directly from the U.S. government. It came directly from the U.S. Army. And <laughs> I tell you, <coughs> the uh, cost on that was $162. And it was 98-something for the rifle. And it was like $65 shipping, handling, and processing. So... 162 bucks. It was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty awesome deal. So I, uh, I have one of those, and then I've since, I'd since bought things from the CMP, and um, you know, but there were guys who were furious that when the CMP was selling in the, you know, mid 90s to the early 2000s, that they were not getting, they were not getting brand new off the production line weapons that, that you know some of the weapons were you know they were service grade but they'd clearly been used and, and clearly been you know rebuilt they weren't getting 
a Winchester with pure Winchester parts on it, you know, and, and a lot of people got into this craze of substituting parts and, and all the rest of it. Um, but basically you could, you know, if you met their, their qualifications stuff that you had to do, you could buy as many as you wanted, you know, it, it wasn't limited. And when they were like 400, 600, 400, $500 a piece for a service grade, it was a great deal. It still was a great deal. I uh, used, I bought several that way, and then they got in a large importation of rifles that had been returned from Greece. During the Greek Civil War, after World War II, we gave them a whole bunch of 1903s and 1903A3s. These came back in the early, right around the year 2000, and so they sold those. So that, those were all pretty, pretty cool. Um, you know, it's all, it's all very interesting. But they, you know, they didn't sell a lot of brand new rifles anymore. And you see guys who would just get so furious that they bought a service grade and it was not a brand new, never fired rifle. And, uh, you know, the expectation management was, hey, these are, these are used rifles. And they were, and it really created the, it was really feeding a lot of this collector market, which was really ridiculous because they were really meant for shooting, not collecting, but be that as it may, uh, that's that's how the the CMP stuff goes. So there was a perception that way back that you were getting a brand new gun, which which was really never true, but that was the perception. Then they had the perception that you should be getting a new gun, but now you're getting these used ones, and some of these have been returned from foreign countries, and and they're kind of raggedy. Uh, the the nineteen the stuff that came in from Greece, and I think that was M1s. Um, and the 03A3s and 03s, you know, some of those have been refinished with kind of a black parkerized finish on it. So they don't really, they, they still look USGI, but it's a, it's a very dark finish. They also got in Danish M1s, if I remember right. Some of those had replacement barrels. Some of them had Beretta parts in them and Brita parts. You know, the, the Italians had had copied the M1 for a period of time after World War II and then developed their own very nice BM-59. So, uh, you know, so, so you had all this kind of stuff floating. And, it, and it's all very, very interesting and and really, uh, really fascinating. I, I think they got M1s back from Turkey also. I think probably Turkey they had M1s from. Uh, so, you know, it's all fantastic. You know, just a lot of a lot of stuff. But, yeah, the, the expectation of a brand new rifle is just simply not there. And so the quality has not gone down. I think the the reality and the expectation management has been something that we've all had to kind of reconcile ourselves with. So that's the uh, that's the story. Uh, the CMP, DCM, CMP, and you know one of the jobs I always wanted in the army was um, director of civilian marksmanship. They they usually had an officer who was the head of that office, and I thought, oh, that'd be so cool, you know, but. Uh, probably bureaucratic like everything else and I think that's all gone now um, but yeah it was very cool very interesting times I don't think it'll be very interesting it, I, it probably won't happen in my lifetime but they might surplus some Berettas off at some point I'm thinking you know it took them through almost it took them 25 years to get to do the 1911s 
Um, I think in maybe maybe 15 years you could see 15, 20, 25 years you could see um, M9s hit the hit the market through the DCM or DCM. There you go, <laughs> CMP through the CMP. And I say that because they're just you know they're going to replace them very quickly. They'll go into storage. No foreign government will really want them. Just like the 1911s. No foreign government will really want them. At a certain point, a government bureaucrat will say, look, it's costing us. We've got, let's just take a round number, 100,000 of these things, or 150,000, and we're spending four or five bucks a year to maintain them. So why don't we just sell them, get, a, get some money for them, and, and move on, you know? And uh, that's what they did with the 1911s. I think they figured it was costing them five bucks a year to, you know, overhead of the building and, and keeping it so they don't rust away and, you know, just the accountability and all that kind of stuff. It's four or five bucks a year for the 1911s. Well, you do that over 20 years, and then all of a sudden now you've invested $100 in a gun that you, as a government, are never going to use again. You're never going to use it again. You're never going to issue it again. So why are you doing that? Uh, you don't need them for museums. You don't need them for anything. So you have two, two uh, routes. One is destruction, which nobody likes, and the other is, hey, you can release them to collectors. And fortunately, we live in enough of a democracy that they release them to collectors. So that is the story with the CMP DCM as far as uh, that kind of stuff goes, and their quality. Uh, I, I really like uh, the stuff I've gotten from them and uh, realize the prices have gone up but you know what um, you're getting it directly from a government source can't beat that I think a lot of the M1s they have now have come back from the Philippines and in America the American Rifleman they've done some interest they found some with some really weird um, modifications like the you know the the uh, handguards will have holes drilled in them you know look kind of cool in some ways but yeah they they have to straighten all that out and put it back into service grade uh, uh, can do, or as close as they can so anyway that's the story well that finishes the 139th episode of old school guns again if you have any questions or comments feel free to uh, leave them on podbean in the comments section or email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com but until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>